Chapter Ten of We of the Never Never by Jeanie, Mrs. Aeneas Gunn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten. It had taken over six weeks to get hold of little Johnny, but as the dandy had prophesied, once he started, he made things hum in no time. Now we shan't be long, he said, flourishing a tape measure, and the dandy was kept busy for half a day wrestling with the calculating. That finished. The store was turned inside out, and a couple of boys sent in for things needed, and after them more boys for more things, and then other boys for other things, until travellers must have thought the camp blacks had entered into a walking competition. When everything was ordered, all hands were put on to sharpen saws and tools, and the homestead shrieked and groaned all day with harsh, discordant raspings. Then a camp was pitched in the forest, a mile or so from the homestead a saw-pit dug, a platform erected, and, before a week had passed, an invitation was issued for the missus to come and see a tree felt, laying the foundation stone, the Maluka called it. Johnny, of course, welcomed us with a jovial, now we shan't be long, and shouldering a tomahawk, led the way out of the camp into the timber. House-hunting in town does not compare favorably with timber-hunting for a house in a luxuriant tropical forest sheltered from the sun and heat we wandered about in the feathery undergrowth while the maluka tested the height of the giant timber above us with shots from his bulldog revolver bringing down twigs and showers of leaves from the topmost branches and sending flocks of white cockatoos up into the air with squawks of amazement tree after tree was chosen and marked with the tomahawk each one appearing taller and straighter and more beautiful than any of its fellows until finding ourselves back at the camp, Johnny went for his axe and left us to look at the beauty around us. Seems a pity to spoil all this, just to make four walls to shut the missus in from anything worth looking at, Dan murmured as Johnny reappeared. They won't make anything as good as this up at the house. Johnny, the unpoetical, hesitated, perplexed. Philosophy was not in his line. "'Tisn't too bad,' he said, suddenly aware of the beauty of the scene and then the tradesman came to the surface. I reckon my job will be a bit more plumb, though, he chuckled, and delighted with his little joke, shouldered his axe, and walked towards one of the marked trees, while Dan speculated aloud on the chances a man had of getting off alive if a tree fell on him. Trees don't fall on a man that knows how to handle timber, the unsuspecting Johnny said briskly, and as Dan feared that fever was her only chance then, he spat on his hands, and, sending the axe home into the bowl of the tree, with a clean swinging stroke, laid the foundation stone, the foundation stone of a tiny home in the wilderness that was destined to be the dwelling place of great joy and happiness and sorrow. The sanguine Scot had prophesied rightly. There being time enough for everything in the never-never, there was time for many pleasant rides along the reach, choosing trees for timber. But the rides were the least part of the pleasure, for the time being the silent reach forest had become the hub of our little universe all was life and bustle and movement there every day fresh trees were felled and chopping contests entered into by johnny and the dandy and as the trees fell in quick succession black boys and lubras armed with tomahawks swarmed over them to lop away the branches before the trunks were dragged by the horses to the mouth of the saw pit everyone was happy and light-hearted and the work went merrily forward, until a great pile of tree trunks lay ready for the saw-pit. Then a new need arose. 
Johnny wanted several yards of strong string and a sop of ink to make guiding lines on the timber for his saw. But his only sewing cotton was forthcoming, and the Maluka refused to part with one drop of his precious ink. We were obliged to go down to the beginning of things once more. Two or three loopers were set to work to convert the sewing cotton into tough, strong string, while others prepared a substitute for the ink from burnt water lily roots. The sawing of the tree trunks lasted for nearly three weeks, and the dandy, being the underman in the pit, had anything but a merry time. Down in the pit, away from the air, he worked, pulling and pushing, pushing and pulling, hour after hour, in a blinding stream of sawdust. When we offered him sympathy and a gossamer veil, he accepted the veil gratefully, but waved the sympathy aside, saying it was all in the good cause. Nothing was ever a hardship to the dandy, excepting dirt. Johnny, being a past master in his trade, stood on the platform in the upper air, guiding the saw along the marked lines, and as he instructed us all in the fine art of pit sawing, Dan decided that the building of a house, under some circumstances, could be an education in itself. Thought she might manage to learn a thing or two out of it, he said. The building of it is right enough. It all depends on what she uses it for when Johnny's done with it. As the pliant saw coaxed beams and slabs and flooring boards out of the forest trees, I grew to like beginning at the beginning of things, and realized there was an underlying truth in Dam's whimsical reiteration that the missus was in luck when she struck this place. For beams and slabs and flooring boards, wrested from nature amid merrymaking and philosophical discourses, are not as other beams and slabs and flooring boards. They are old friends and fellow adventurers, with many a good tale to tell, recalling comical situations in their reminiscences with a vividness that baffles description. Perhaps those who live in homes, with the beginning of things left behind in forests they have never seen, may think chattering planks, poor compensation for unpapered, rough-boarded walls, and unglazed window frames. Let them try it before they judge, remembering always that before a house can be built of old friends and memories, the friends must be made, and the memories lived through. But other things beside the sawing of timber were in progress. Things were also humming in the dog world. A sturdy fox terrier, brown by name, had been given by a passing traveller to the Maluka, given almost of necessity for brown, as is the way with fox terriers at times, quietly changed masters, and lying down at the Maluka's feet, had refused to leave him. The station dogs resented his presence there, and persecuted him as an interloper, and being a peace-loving dog, Brown bore it patiently for two days, hoping, no doubt, the persecution would wear itself out. On the third day, however, he quietly changed his tactics, for sometimes the only road to peace is through fighting, and, accepting their challenge, took on the station dogs one by one in single combat. Only a full-sized, particularly sturdy-looking fox terrier against expert cattle dogs, and yet no dog could stand against him. One by one he closed with them, and one by one they went before him, and at the end of a week he was cock of the walk, and lay down to enjoy his well-earned peace. His death-stroke was a flashing lunge, from a grip of a foreleg to a sharp, grinding grip of the enemy's tongue. How he managed it was a puzzle, but sooner or later he got his grip in, to let go at the piercing yell of defeat that invariably followed. But Brown was a gentleman, not a bully, and after each fight buried the hatchet, appearing to shake hands with the late adversary. 
No doubt, if he'd had a tail, he would have wagged it. But Brown had been born with a large, perfectly round black spot at the root of his tail, and his then-owner, having an eye for the picturesque, had removed his white tail entirely, even to its last joint, to allow of no break in the spot. And when the spirit moved Brown to wag a tail, a violent stirring of hairs in the centre of this spot betrayed his desire to the world. It goes without saying that Brown did not fight the canine womenfolk, for, as someone has said, man is the only animal that strikes his womenfolk. Most of the battles were fought in the station thoroughfare, all of them taking on the form of a general melee. As soon as Brown closed with an enemy, the rest of the dogs each sought an especial adversary, hoping to wipe out some past defeat, while the pups, having no past to wipe out, diverted themselves by skirmishing about on the outskirts of the scrimmage, nipping joyously at any hind quarters that came handy, bumping into other groups of pups, thoroughly enjoying life, and accumulating material for future fights among themselves. Altogether, we had a lively week. To interfere in the fights only prolonged them, and, to add to the general hubbub, the servant question had opened up again. Jimmy's Nellie, who had been simmering for some time, suddenly rebelled and refused to consider herself among the rejected. We said there was no vacancy on the staff for her, and she immediately set herself to create one, by pounding and punching at the staff in the private. Finding this of no avail, she threatened to sing Maudie dead, also in private, unless she resigned. Maudie proved unexpectedly tough and defiant. Nellie gave up all hope of creating a vacancy, and changing front, adopted a stonewalling policy. Every morning, quietly and doggedly, she put herself on the staff, and every morning was as quietly and doggedly dismissed from office. Doggedness being an unusual trait in a black fellow, the homestead became interested. Never say die, little un, the Maluka laughed each morning. But Dan was inclined to bet on Nellie. She's got nothing else to do, and can concentrate all her thoughts on it, he said. And besides, it means more for her. It meant a good deal to me, too, for I particularly objected to Jimmy's Nellie, partly because she was an inveterate smoker and profuse spitter upon floors, partly because, well, to be quite honest, because a good application of carbolic soap would have done no harm, and partly because she appeared to have a passion for exceedingly scanty garments, her favorite costume being a skirt made from the upper half of a fifty-pound calico flower bag. Her blouses had, apparently, been all mislaid. Nellie, unconscious of my real objections, daily and doggedly put herself on the staff, and was daily and doggedly dismissed. But as she generally managed to do the very thing that most needed doing, before I could find her to dismiss, Dan was offering ten to one on Nellie by Easter time. Another moon'll see her on the staff, he prophesied, as we prepared to go out bush for Easter. The Easter moon had come in dry and cool, and at its full the wet lifted, as our traveller had foretold. Only a bushman's personal observation, remember, this lifting of the wet with the full of the Easter moon, not a scientific statement, but by an insight particularly their own, bushmen come at more facts than most men. Sam did his best with Bunday, serving hot rolls with mysterious markings on them for breakfast, and by midday he had the homestead to himself, the Maluka and I being camped at Bitter Springs, and everyone else being elsewhere. Our business was yard inspection, with Goggle-Eye as general factotum. We, of course, had ridden out, but Goggle-Eye had preferred to walk. 
me all day knock up longer horse he explained striding comfortably alongside us several exciting hours were spent with boxes of wet matches burning the rank grass back from the yard at the springs at google eyes suggestion the missus had been pressed into the service and then we rode through the rank grass all along the river scattering matches as we went like sparks from an engine as soon as the rank grass seeds it must be burnt off before the soil loses its moisture to ensure a second shorter spring and everywhere we went now clouds of dense smoke rose behind us that walk about with the maluka and gadgery lived like a red-letter day in old goggle-eyes memory for did he not himself strike a dozen full boxes of matches dan was away beyond the northern boundary going through the cattle judging the probable duration of outside waters for that year burning off too as he rode the quiet stockman was away beyond the southern boundary rounding up wanderers and stragglers among the horses and the station was face to face with the year's work making preparation for the year's mustering and branding for with the lifting of the wet everything in the never never begins to move after the wet rivers go down the northwest monsoon giving place to the southwest trades bogs dry up everywhere opening all roads travelers pass through the stations from all points of the compass cattle buyers drovers station owners telegraph people all bent on business and all glad to get moving after the long compulsory inaction of the wet and lastly that great yearly cumbrous event takes place the starting of the wagons with their year's stores for inside the first batch of travelers had little news for us they had heard that the teams were loading up and couldn't say for certain and finding them unsatisfactory we looked forward to the coming of the fizzer our mailman who was almost due eight mails a year was our allowance with an extra one now and then through the courtesy of travellers eight mails a year against eight hundred for the townsfolk was it any wonder that we all found we had business at the homestead when the fizzer was due there when he came this trip he was as usual brimming over with news personal items public gossip and the news that the horse teams had got most of their loading on and that the Macs were getting the bullocks under way. Two horse wagons and a dray for far inside, and three bullock wagons for the nearer distances, comprised the wagons that year. The Teamsters were Englishmen, but the bullock punchers were three Macs, an Irishman, a Highlander, and the Sanguine Scot. Six wagons and about six months hard traveling in and out to provide a year's stores for three cattle stations and two telegraph stations it is not surprising that the freight per ton was what it was twenty-two pounds per ton for the elsie and upwards of forty pounds for inside it is this freight that makes the grocery bill such a big item on stations out bush where several tons of stores are considered by no means a large order close on the heels of the fizzer came other travellers with the news that the horse teams had got going and the max had pulled out to the four mile your trunks will be along in no time now missus one of them said they've got em all aboard the dandy did some rapid calculations ten miles a day on good roads he said one hundred and seventy miles tens into that seventeen days give em a week over for unforeseen emergencies and call it four weeks it sounded quite cheerful and near at hand but a belated thunderstorm or two and consequent bogs nearly doubled the four weeks almost every day 
we heard news of the teams from the now constant stream of travellers and by the time the timber was all sawn and carted to the house to fulfil the many promises there they were at the catherine but if the teams were at the catherine so were the teamsters and so was the pub and when teamsters and a pub get together it generally takes time to separate them when that pub is the last for over a thousand miles one pub at the catherine and another at unandata and between them over a thousand miles of bush and desert and dust and heat and thirst that from a teamster's point of view is the overland route from unandata to the catherine a pub had little attraction for the sanguine scot and provided he could steer the other max safely past the one at the catherine there would be no delay there with the trunks but the year's stores were on the horse teams and the station having learnt bitter experience from the past now sent in its own wagon for the bulk of the stores as soon as they were known to be in at the catherine and so the dandy set off at once we'll see you within a fortnight bar accidents he called back as the wagon lurched forward towards the slip rails and the pub also having little attraction for the dandy we decided to expect him bar accidents for that matter a pub had little attraction for any of the elsie men the quiet stockman being a total abstainer and dan knowing how to behave himself although he owned to having got a bit merry once or twice the dandy out of sight johnny went back to his work which happened to be hammering the curves out of sheets of corrugated iron now we shan't be long he shouted hammering vigorously and when i objected to the awful din he reminded me with a grin that it was all in the good cause when smoothed out as johnny phrased it the iron was to be used for capping the piles that the house was built upon to make them little white ants stay at home we'll smooth all your troubles out if you give us time he shouted returning to the hammering after his explanation with even greater energy but by dinner-time someone had waddled into our lives who was to smooth most of the difficulties out of it to his own and our complete satisfaction just as sam announced dinner a cloud of dust creeping along the horizon attracted our attention foot travellers dan decided but something emerged out of the dust as it passed through the slip rails that looked very like a huge mould of white jelly on horseback directly it sighted us it rolled off the horse whether intentionally or unintentionally we could not say and leaving the beast to the care of chance unfolded two short legs from somewhere and waddled toward us a fat jovial chinese john falstaff g'day boss g'day missus g'day all about he said in cheerful salute as he trundled toward us like a ship's barrel in full sail me new cook me and then sam appeared and towed him into port well i'm blessed dan exclaimed staring after him what have we struck but johnny knew as did most territorians you've struck Chion. that's all he said talk of luck he's the jolliest old josser going the jolliest old josser seemed difficult to repress for already he had eluded sam and reappearing in the kitchen doorway waddled across the thoroughfare towards us me new cook he repeated going on from where he had left off me chion and then in queer pidgin english he solemnly rolled out a few of his many qualifications me savvy all about he chanted me savvy cook em and garden em and milk em and chucky and fishin and shootin wild duck on and on he chanted through a varied list of accomplishments ending up with an application for the position of cook me sit down eh boss he asked moon-faced and serious please yourself the maluka laughed 
and with a flash of white teeth and an infectious chuckle, Cheon laughed and nodded back. Then, still chuckling, he waddled away to the kitchen and took possession there, while we went to our respective dinners, little guessing that the truest-hearted, most faithful, most loyal old josser had waddled into our lives. End of chapter 10